Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. Just want to say a special thank you to everyone who contributed, helped out in our workday yesterday. It was so great to see everybody up here working together and just with smiles on our faces and joy in our hearts. We had a good time. It was like a party kind of up here. It was fun. Got to bang through walls and everything. That was pretty cool. <coughs> we had some heavy equipment. It was fun. So thank you to everyone who uh, helped out with that. It's a real blessing. Let's turn our Bibles as we continue to work through the book of Mark, chapter 3. Uh, Mark, chapter 3. And we'll pick up in Mark, chapter 3. And Jesus has come, hasn't he? He's been healing the lame. He's been causing all kinds of ruckus, right? Healing the lame and touching lepers, making them whole and clean again. And who would dare to touch a leper, you know? And he, he heals them completely, touches them in doing so. And he didn't have to do that. He could have just thought it, and it, they would have made, made clean and whole. But he, he made a point by doing those things. You know, I'm going to touch this person uh, just to show how powerful I really am and people can see and see God's power in me. He made the blind to see, the deaf to hear, and he's casting out demons and forgiving sins of those who trust in him, and he's preaching the gospel to the poor and eating and drinking with those old scoundrels, those tax collectors and sinners, and man, he's just, he's just shattering all the self-righteous religion of the day, just shattering it, and it's causing a big ruckus, it's causing a big crowd to gather, huge crowds continue to gather around Jesus. They press in on him and his disciples. In verse 9, uh, he's, he told his disciples to have the boat ready for him because of the crowd, because he thought they might crush them. You know, <laughs> they might actually be physically crushed by the tens of thousands of people that have been gathering uh, to see Jesus. And we can see in chapter 3 the various reactions to Jesus and his ministry. There have been various reactions. Uh, we see the reaction of the general population and the crowds as they're like, wow, this guy's a rock star. You know, we've never seen anything like this. And he can heal, uh, you know, tell everybody. And they tell everybody, and they're coming from all over the place, right? Outside of Israel even, from Tyre and from Sidon and beyond the Jordan River and way down by, uh, south by the Dead Sea. They're all coming from all over the place. The, cow the crowds are gathering. Many just want to be healed. Uh, from their illnesses. You know, there's not real good medical care uh, in those days. And so, man, this guy, Jesus, can heal. Grab whoever and come. Just get there. And you can imagine, right? And they're all walking or riding in animals, etc. They don't have cars. You know, this is a big journey, but they are coming, and they're coming by the tens of thousands. And so we've seen the, the general reaction of the crowds. And in our text today, we're going to see the reaction of two distinct groups. The first we'll see is the reaction of his own family, Jesus' family. He had a family here on earth, and we're going to see how they reacted to his ministry. And we're also going to continue to see the reaction of the religious leaders of the day, who don't <laughs> particularly appreciate Jesus and his ministry at all. <clears throat> now, the reaction of Jesus, both his family to him and him to his family as seen as really in the bookends of our text today. We're going to see that. And the reaction of the religious leaders is kind of sandwiched right in the middle uh, of the passage we're going to read today. And then the, uh, the parables of chapter 4 
are a continuation of the message of Jesus in response to the unbelief, really, of his family, and especially the condemnation of the, of the scribes and the Pharisees that we'll see today. And Pastor Jared has the amazing honor and privilege to preach through the parables, the kingdom parables. Man, I'm jealous of him on that. I love that. <clears throat> but he gets to do that part. And so let's pick up here at chapter 3, verse 20. Chapter 3, verse 20. And it says here, he went home. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they, they were saying, he is out of his mind. Okay, so I just want to pause right there. So here we have Jesus in this big crowd of people, and he goes home, someone's home. We don't know exactly who it is. It's someone's house. He goes into someone's house. It may have been one of the disciples' homes. We, we don't know for sure. But he goes into a home, and the crowd's gathered again. So many people, they, they can't even eat. They can't even have a meal. There's so many people. Now his family hears about it. They hear about the crowds, they hear about what's going on, and, and they have to hear about it because, you know, they're not following him. <laughs> they don't particularly appreciate his ministry either. His family is not with him. Remember what happened when he taught at Nazareth? You remember that? One message from Jesus in the synagogue there, and they ran him out of town and tried to throw him off the cliff. That's what happened in Nazareth. You can read about that in the book of Luke. You know, he preaches his first message in his hometown, and they're so angry with him. They're like, isn't that the carpenter's son? Who does he think he is? And they, they run him out of town. They literally try to throw him off the cliff, but he makes his escape. And so he's not real loved and welcomed in the hometown there of Nazareth or with his families. And you remember, he didn't do many miracles at all in Nazareth because they didn't believe in him there. They had no faith. <clears throat> and Jesus even told them directly that a prophet isn't without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. Prophets aren't really held in high honor in their own families and in their hometowns. Jesus knows this, and that was clearly demonstrated. Now, Jesus has, he has, he had a family. We know his mother was Mary. His father was Joseph. And after Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph had other children who were his half-brothers and half-sisters. Uh, we can see that in Matthew chapter 13, uh, verse 55. They say this, is, is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and are not his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? They're even named. Are not all his sisters with us? So he had brothers and sisters, big family. <clears throat> When did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. And so we even know some of their names, his brothers specifically, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. And at this point in his ministry, they think he's crazy. I mean, let's just put it bluntly. They think he's crazy. The text we read just now says he's out of his mind. They think he's just insane. He's out of his mind. They don't believe in him at all. And they've come to seize him, it says in our text. They've come to seize him, like arrest him, basically, <clears throat> and take him home because they think he's just an absolute nut and is bringing shame to the family name. So like, we got to go get Jesus. I mean, he's, he's just lost it. I mean, we've heard enough. 
this guy, he's just embarrassing us too much. We got to go get him. And that's what they've done. That's what they've come to do. Now, it's interesting because Mary knew who he, who he was, right? She had been told by the angel. She had conceived the Lord Jesus by the Holy Spirit. And remember from the other gospel, she treasured up all these things in her heart. And she instructed him, remember, to perform the miracle at Cana, turning the water into wine. So she knew who he was. She knew the power that he had. But the brothers and sisters, they didn't believe in him at all. At all. Can, just imagine growing up with perfect Jesus. I mean, brothers and sisters, you, you, it's hard enough to get along, right? Like, there goes perfect Jesus again. You know, you can just imagine. Because he never sinned, right? Never, ever. Always had the right answer. So you can imagine the contempt in the family. You know, we've all had brothers and sisters. We know that drama that's always there. Per there goes perfect Jesus again. Why don't you just have perfect Jesus do it? You, know, you can just imagine what things were like at home. And so they, they don't believe in him at all, actually. <clears throat> they hold him in contempt. Now they think he's just a nut, and they've come to arrest him. It really wasn't until after his death and resurrection that his family began believing in him. Uh, we see that in the book of Acts, chapter 1, that they were actually there in the upper room. So by that point, they had believed in him. Uh, but originally, they did not. Uh, they thought he was crazy. His brother James believed and eventually wrote the book of James. So the book of James in the Bible was written by Jesus' half-brother, James. And Jude, which is also named Judas here, Jude also believed, and he's the author of the book of Jude. So they did come to faith in the Lord Jesus. It just took a while. <laughs> he had to die first <laughs> and rise from the, from the dead. Then they, then they did believe in him. And so we're going to see more on them in, in just a little bit. But now, you know, it opens up in this part that, you know, they, they just think he's crazy and they've come to take him away. Uh, enough is enough, Jesus. <laughs> We've got to help you out here. It's just too much. And they've come to seize him. And we're going to see more on, on, their, on the family in just a little bit. <clears throat> and so that's the reaction of his family to his ministry. And now we're going to see the scribes and Pharisees, a continued reaction from them in verse 22. So look at verse 22. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. No one, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemes they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And so now we get to the scribes of the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day. What do they think about Jesus? Well, we've seen this over and over again, what they think about him. They absolutely hate him. He's muscling in on their action, and they don't like it one bit. He doesn't follow their rules. He doesn't play their game at all. 
Actually, everywhere he's going, he's shattering their rules and turning all of their precepts and doctrines and teachings just upside down. He's turning them right, right upside down on their heads. They've hated him from the beginning, and it doesn't stop here. Jesus continues to do miracles. He continues to heal the sick. As a matter of fact, if you looked in Matthew, what prompted this confrontation was that Jesus just healed someone else. And they don't like this. They can't stop him. He's healing the sick, the lame, the deaf, and the mute, and the blind. He's casting out demons and performing many supernatural acts. And so the scribes and the Pharisees, you know, they've got to come up with a spin on this that deals with the supernatural nature of what he's doing. This is their anti-Jesus campaign. Now, these aren't the, the, the scribes from the local area. No, these are the official party leaders from the home office down in Jerusalem. You can see that in verse 22. These were scribes who came down from Jerusalem. So these are the head honchos. You know, these are official representatives here coming with the official party message, the official marketing spin against Jesus and his ministry. This is the counter-Jesus offensive here. They've sent the guys from home office this time. They're serious. And they're trying everything they can to discredit Jesus. So they develop their own messaging spin on what he's doing to try to bring down his ministry and undermine his credibility. And so, because of the acts that, he are, that he's doing, because of the, the supernatural acts, they must come up with a supernatural explanation for what's going on and how he's doing them. And so they say he's possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons, he casts out demons, is what they say. This crazy Jesus, he can do all this stuff because he's actually possessed by Satan. That's the, that's the attack against Jesus. That's how he can do all these super, supernatural acts. He is possessed by Satan. That's how he does it. Beelzebul was the name of a Canaanite god, which means lord of the house, lord of the temple. <coughs> that's what that means. And Beelzebul is identified with Satan here since they say that Jesus is possessed by Beelzebul and that by the prince of demons he casts out demons. That's their attack against him. And so what is Jesus going to do with this? Is he just going to ignore it? Like pretend they don't, they're not there, just keep going on and not address it? No, he gets right to them. He actually calls them to himself. Look at verse 23. He called to them. And said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? So he doesn't just let this slide. He actually said, come, 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 come here, let me, let me teach you something. And so he deals with it head on. He's not afraid of them. He doesn't run from them. He deals with them head on. Calls them to himself. And he talks to them in parables. And we're going to see more and more now. Jesus is going to teach in parables. And we're going to get into that next time. The purpose of parables and teaching in parables. But he teaches them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. And so Jesus knows their thoughts. 
We see that throughout the Gospels. Jesus knows their thoughts, and he calls them to himself to correct them. And he uses three parables to correct them. Three images are given here. First, the divided kingdom. Next, the divided house. And then third, the binding of the strong man by someone stronger. And he tells them a divided kingdom will not stand. And we see this, right? Wherever there's civil war, a kingdom falls. And two new separate kingdoms may arise. These will be smaller and weaker than the original unified kingdom. Abraham Lincoln quoted these verses, you know, during our own civil war. He understood this right from the Bible. And so he says, he teaches with the parable, look, a divided kingdom will not stand. A house divided against itself also falls in similar fashion. When it's divided, you have two smaller entities which, which have less power. They fall, they're weaker. A divided kingdom will not stand. Division brings destruction. That's why Satan, when he works, he throws seeds of discord among people in churches and other communities. He wants to throw seeds of discord into our hearts and get us fighting with each other and arguing with each other, usually over very petty things, self-righteous types of things, so that we're fighting against each other and divided against each other and we will fall. That's his strategy. So logically, in verse 26, Jesus says, If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he's coming to an end. Use your brains, people. If Satan's divided against himself, he will fall. He's teaching them clearly, very logically. He will come to an end if he's divided against himself. And in verse 27, Jesus, this is one, he talks about this illustration of binding the strong by someone stronger. Jesus is the one who enters the strong man's house and binds him to plunder his goods. Satan is the strong man in his his parable, in his illustration. And the world, this world is his house. And Jesus has come and has bound him and his power for a time, and Jesus is plundering his goods. Jesus is the one, right, casting out demons, plundering Satan's goods by freeing those controlled by him and giving them salvation and peace. So that's how the illustration works here. He's come into this world. He's bound the strong man, Satan in this case, and he's freeing all of these people from the demons that possessed them, and he's giving them peace and life and forgiveness. He is plundering Satan's goods by the power of God and by the Spirit of God. So to say that the work of Jesus, that the work that Jesus is doing in saving souls by the power of the Holy Spirit is the work of Satan is a very grave sin indeed. It's actually the most grave and unforgivable, in fact, sin. And we see that here in verse 28. (coughs) Truly I say to you, Jesus says, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemes they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. 
Now, many want to know if they've, if they've committed the unforgivable sin. I mean, here we are. This is it right here. People talk about this. Have I committed the unforgivable sin? I'm afraid I've committed the unforgivable sin. Some people worry about this. I've had people approach me and ask me that question. I'm afraid I've committed the unforgivable sin. And, and it's not merely an academic question. It's a, it's a very serious matter. I mean, what could be more terrifying than to believe you are beyond forgiveness and bound for eternal misery with no escape? What could be more frightening than that? And so let's ask a couple questions, actually three questions about our text today. First, is there really an unforgivable sin? I mean, really? Is that true? And if so, what is it? And then third, you know, how should we live our lives in view of that? And so the first question, you know, is there really an unforgivable sin? Is that really true? This is all about God's forgiveness and not man's. <clears throat> what God thinks about your sin is infinitely important. And we're on the topic of sin here, and it's infinitely important what God thinks about your sin. Never from the mouth of God truly means never. He's not joking around here. You know, we say that sometimes. I'll never forgive that person what they did to me. Well, you know, years go by and you can actually forgive them and it's okay. And time gives you a little bit of healing and patience. And so your never didn't really mean never. But God's not like us. <laughs> When he says never, he means never. And he says never right here. And he's not going to come around 1,000, 2,000 years from now, oh, yeah, back in Mark 3 when I said never. No, I didn't really mean that. No, that's not how God operates. He means never. And it's serious. And in Matthew 12, 32, we can see in this parallel passage, he says there's no forgiveness in this age or in the age to come. So not now, not never. Verse 29 here says they're guilty, guilty of an eternal sin, an eternal sin. Guilt is pressed down and held fast for all eternity. And I want us to know, brothers and sisters, God is never neutral toward sin. <clears throat> never neutral. He either forgives you for it through the blood of Christ, or you're held guilty and pay the penalty of death for it for all eternity. He's never neutral toward it. And this passage clearly teaches that there'll be some, there will be some that will be shut out of and found guilty of sin and will be apart from the Lord forever and ever, forever being punished for their sin. So yes, there really is an unforgivable sin, and we need to take it seriously. So next question is, okay, since there is one, well, what is it then? Now you got my attention. What is it? Verse 29, we can see it's the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. In verse 30, we can see in the context here exactly what that is. It's saying that the work of God is the work of the devil or the work of an unclean spirit. That's what it is. 
<clears throat> you can see it in verse 30. Verse 22, they were saying he was possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of the demons, he casts out demons. And so they were basically saying the work of the Spirit of God, and we know from the, the parallel passage in, in Matthew, that he casts out demons by the Spirit of God. And so they were saying the work of the Spirit of God is the work of Satan. And that's the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Their hearts were so hardened. Now, it's interesting in this passage that he doesn't call them out as actually doing it. He doesn't say, you have committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and therefore you are condemned to hell forever and ever with no forgiveness. He doesn't, he doesn't do that. I thought that was interesting. So perhaps they haven't actually committed it yet. Or perhaps they have. I'm not the judge. Because he didn't call them out directly and condemn them. So maybe they have, maybe they haven't. But Mark has made it clear to this point in the Gospel of Mark that there is forgiveness given when there is repentance from sin, right? We've seen many times, turn from sin and trust in God. Turn from sin, follow God. Mark 1.4, John the Baptist came preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. You want to be forgiven of your sins? You repent. You turn from your sin, and you turn to Jesus. You trust in the Lord Jesus with all your heart. You believe in him and his work on the cross. You trust him for your salvation alone. You turn from your dead works and your sin, and you turn to Jesus. And you, get, you will receive forgiveness for your sins. Praise God for that. That's the gospel message. Mark 1.15, Jesus was preaching, repent and believe in the gospel, he said. <coughs> repent, turn from your sins, believe in the gospel, be saved. So when Mark says in verse 28 that all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemes they utter, he's talking about sins that are repented of. Sins that are confessed and turned from. But there is one excluded from that promise. And the reason is that the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit excludes you from the possibility of repenting. You're beyond repentance if you're committing this sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Your heart is too hard. Now, it's interesting. You know, why not blasphemy against Jesus? Why not blasphemy against God the Father? Because he says in the text, uh, you can basically say all you want about Jesus, about the Son of God, say all you want about God the Father, but oh, you don't say, you don't blaspheme the Holy Spirit now. That's, you've gone too far. Don't you dare do that. That one's unforgivable. All the other blasphemies, you know, they're, they, they can be forgiven, but not against the Holy Spirit. Uh-uh. Don't you go there. So why? Well, the Holy Spirit has a unique role to play in our salvation. <clears throat> you know, there are many who turn away from God the Father and reject his love and even his existence. Many, many so-called atheists don't believe in God the Father. I reject his love. I, I, I don't believe in him at all. And that's a very horrible thing. It's a terrible thing. It's a tragic thing. 
There are many who turn away from Jesus Christ, the Son, and reject his love and his sacrifice on the cross to forgive them of their sins. And that's a doubly horrible thing. But it's the special work of the Holy Spirit that bears witness to the saving work of Jesus in our hearts and grants us faith to believe in Christ and trust him alone for salvation. It's that work of the Holy Spirit, brothers and sisters, that takes you from that place of, oh, I don't even believe there's a God to, God's beautiful. There is a God. And I love him. It's that work of the Holy Spirit, brothers and sisters, that busts through that wall of unbelief in our hearts and gives us the faith to believe. It's that work. And it's that same work of the Holy Spirit that gives us the faith to believe in Jesus, his son. So that one day you would talk to someone and they would say, all that Jesus stuff, that's just a bunch of hooey. He is just some nut teacher back in Palestine, had a big following. Not a, I don't believe any of that stuff. And you might see them a week from, from that point, and they're like, oh, tears in their eyes. I, I believe in Jesus. All that stuff I said before, I was so wrong. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's why when I hear someone talk like that, I just start praying for them. Like, Spirit, Holy Spirit of God, save their soul. Help them to see. Help them to hear. As Jesus even said, he who has eyes to see, let him see. And he who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's the Holy Spirit opening their eyes and their ears to be able to see and hear and know that Jesus is God and give them faith to believe. That's the work of the Spirit. The Spirit is the one that bears witness to that saving work. And it's the Holy Spirit's work in our hearts that brings us to repentance. And so that's the sin. If you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you, if you're that far gone in your unbelief and hardness of heart, there's no forgiveness for that. You will never, ever believe. That's the point. Now, how should we live in view of this? Well, if you reject the Holy Spirit, there will be no repentance. There will be no trust in Christ. And there is no other than the Holy Spirit that can open your eyes to see the glory of Christ. I cannot argue you into the kingdom of God and have you say, oh, that was the right argument. You finally convinced me. <laughs> it's not going to happen. No amount of arguing with you will ever win you into the kingdom of God. 1 John 5.16 speaks of this. He speaks of a sin unto death. And he says, you know, I don't even say you should pray for that. I believe that's what he's talking about here. <clears throat> the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is likely what he spoke of in that passage. It's an act of resistance against the Holy Spirit that grieves the Spirit to the extent that he withdraws from you and his convicting power is just gone from you forever. You're forever unable to repent, to believe in Jesus, and ultimately to be saved. And so those who claim the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit is the work of Satan and his demons are like these Pharisees and scribes in our text today. Their hearts are so hardened, they're blaspheming the Holy Spirit and committing a sin that will never be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. 
So this is the symptom of the deeper sin that's been committed here, likely. I mean, when you see the powerful work of God to change a life, to save a soul, and you claim that's the work of demons, man, you're, you're just so far gone in your heart against God. And that's a terrifying thought and a horrible reality. And so, brothers and sisters, we're to take sin seriously in our lives. This is how we live in light of knowing this. Sin is serious. Sin is deadly. And let's not reject Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Let's not push that away and harden our hearts against God. Let's trust in the Lord and love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and not harden our hearts against him and live in unbelief against him. And so, yes, there is an unforgivable sin. It is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And let's live lives of faith and love toward the Lord and not reject him and harden our hearts against him. That's how we should live in view of it. Now back to Jesus' family. So we've seen the initial reaction of his family. We've seen now the reaction of the official scribes from Jerusalem the official party line, the marketing spin against Jesus, as everyone's been instructed, is anytime you see something like that happen, you tell them it's the work of Satan and his demons. That's how Jesus is doing this. That's the propaganda campaign against Jesus. And <clears throat> Now back to Jesus' family, verse 31. And his mothers and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now, Jesus knows everything. And we've seen that demonstrated many times as we've studied the Gospels. <clears throat> he knows everything. He knows even the thoughts of people. And he knows the thoughts of his own family. He knows that they think he's out of his mind. And he knows that they've come to seize him, to arrest him effectively, and take him away back home to try to stop all of this son of God nonsense. He knows that. He knows they're out there to get him. And they stand outside, interestingly, they stand outside and they send someone in to get him. <laughs> they send someone in to get Jesus for them. <clears throat> now Jesus is with a crowd, and as usual, uh, they tell him his family's there looking for him. And as usual, Jesus uses the opportunity to teach. Here's another teaching opportunity. So he asked the question, who are my mother and my brothers? Who are they? Who are my mother and my brothers? Now, he knows who they are, and he knows they're standing out there because someone just told him. So, who are my mother and my brothers? Here are my mother and my brothers. He says it emphatically. He's making a, 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 a specific point here. Here are my mother and my brothers. And so he's sitting with his disciples, who he's just called. He's sitting with this, uh, this crowd of his followers. Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now, you might read this on the surface and say, well, 
How dare Jesus talk about his family like that? What is, what's wrong with him? Doesn't he love his mama? I mean, come on. Now, he's not showing here that he has contempt and disrespect for his family. Don't read the text that way. He's not showing disrespect or contempt for his family. Now, we know, we know that because he loves. Jesus is all about love and mercy and grace. And we know, because in the Gospel of John, we see even while he was hanging on the cross, he sees his mother standing with John the Apostle and instructs John to care for his mother, Mary. In his dying moments and breaths, he is instructing his mother to be cared for. He loves his mother. <clears throat> so he's not showing contempt for his mother or family. <clears throat> and we, read about, we can read about that in John 19, 26. No, he loves his family. He loves them dearly. But he's not going to allow them to sidetrack his ministry and his message. And so Jesus introduces a concept here of a spiritual family a spiritual family, and it's made up of those people who love God and do his will, all of those people in the world who love God and do the will of God are all part of a spiritual family. They're your spiritual brothers and sisters in the Lord. <clears throat> That's why you hear us talk like that here in the church. Some of the kids might be like, why do they always call each other brother Brother Frank and Brother Chris and Brother Jerry, what, what's all this sister and brother and sister stuff? That's not really your sister, is it? Well, in the Lord, yes, we're a spiritual family. <clears throat> and it's a beautiful thing. You know, I've been on mission trips. I go halfway around the world, and, and I'm there with other people who believe and love in the, the Lord Jesus, and they're hugging me and saying, brother. They're, they're Puerto Rican or they're Asian or they're... they're you know, any kind of nationality, it doesn't matter. They love Jesus. I love Jesus. We're brothers. We're sisters. And it's a beautiful thing to see and experience. You show up there on the scene, and they love Jesus, and they're singing praises to Jesus, just like we do. <clears throat> it's like, wow, this is like a big family. Because it is. And we, we have maybe nothing else in common, right? But we have one thing in common. Man, we love Jesus. We love Jesus. And so we can be with each other for hours and hours and hours and hours and enjoy each other and our, our, enjoy each other's company because we love Jesus. We're a spiritual family. <clears throat> and so we call each other brothers and sisters in the Lord, in the church. And notice the inclusiveness of the whoever. He says, whoever does the will of God. So it doesn't matter if you're black or you're white, if you're rich or you're poor, if you're red or brown or yellow or whatever skin color you are, if you're male or female, young or old, rich or poor, bond, slave or free, Jew or Gentile, it does not matter. None of that matters. You love Jesus? Are you doing the will of God? That's how you'll tend to know if somebody loves Jesus, right? If they're doing the will of God. Brothers and sisters. <clears throat> but it's also, it's, it's inclusive, but it's also exclusive, right? Those and those alone who do God's will are included. So 
So if you're not believing in Jesus, you're excluded. You're not doing the will of God, excluded. You're on the outside. And so the call on us today, brothers and sisters, is to turn from our sins, believe in the Lord Jesus, do the will of God. These things kind of work together. You know, you, you, you do the will of God by believing. You believe, and that helps you do. These things kind of, they work together. It's like two sides of a coin, these things. They work together. Do the will of God. Believe in Jesus. Walk in righteousness. Be saved from your sins. Join the family of God today. You do that by believing. You just trust him. It's simple. And you will be in the family of God. <clears throat> so what about you today? Who is Jesus to you? Are you on the outside like his brothers and sisters at this point, thinking he's just some nice old teacher and a little bit crazy? Or are you like the Pharisees and think he's just a liar who gets his power from the demons and from Satan? I don't think there's anybody like that in here, but I'm not going to assume. <laughs> or are you trusting in him? Are you part of his family? God, I just pray that's the attitude of our hearts today. That we're trusting in him. We love him with all of our heart. And so let's turn from our sins. Let's trust in the Lord Jesus Christ today. Make him our Savior and our Lord and truly experience the abundant and eternal life that he's promised to all who are faithful and be in the family of God. Amen.